Nats Chat is brought to you by Walters, and Walters would like to take the last few games of the season to thank all Nationals fans for supporting Walters this year. Walters knows it's been difficult with mask mandates, social distancing, and an awkward transition from contending to rebuilding. Here's to 2022 and the hope for more fun times together. Stay safe, Nats fans. We'll see you next year. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Here's the pitch. Swing and a miss and a high fastball. He struck him out. Josiah Gray has another strikeout himself, and that is seven for the afternoon. And a swing and a drive deep left center field. This one way back. Bell to the wall. It is gone. Goodbye. Kike Hernandez turns around a 97-mile-an-hour fastball. That is his 20th home run of the year. And the... Nationals bullpen has failed them here in the late going. They now lead it by the score of 5-1. to one. And welcome to Nats Chat for Sunday, October 3rd, 2021, along with Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast for the second time in as many games in this season-ending series for the Nationals against the Boston Red Sox at Nationals Park. A playoff-like atmosphere announced attendance of 41,465. Those fans got treated to plenty of baseball, three hours, 53 minutes. Nets did not get their first base runner until a pinch hit by the returning Gerardo Parra with two outs in the bottom of the six. Josiah Gray ended his season on a high note, but Tanner Rainey and Mason Thompson combined to allow four runs in the top of the ninth, and the result was another Nats loss. 5-3 the final. Nats now 65-96 and on the season. The Red Sox in this ultra-tight American League wildcard race now are guaranteed to at least play in a tiebreaker game on Monday. Davey Martinez made news in his pregame press conference on Saturday. We have a lot to get to off this, the penultimate game of the Nats season. Just one game left for the Nats in their 2021 season. And you get the feeling that it's about time for this Nats season to end. This is now seven losses over the last eight games. Nats do battle, did so again on Saturday. But Mark, it felt on Saturday like it has felt for a while. Nats are pretty clearly running on empty right now. Yeah, they are. But I'll tell you what, when Juan Soto come up to bat with the bases loaded and in a uh, downer run, and that crowd, a full house, and yes, half of them are Red Sox fans, half of them are Nationals fans, but everybody's on their feet. There's just a little bit of October chill in the air. It felt big. As an observer watching this from way up in the press box, that's the closest that I've felt to anything like 2019. 
Obviously, the stakes are not the same on the national side of it, but obviously the stakes are quite high for the Red Sox. And those last two innings, a lot happened. Some of it good, some of it really bad, but it was exciting. And it did give you a little taste of what we saw here two years ago and a taste of something that they very much hope to experience again. The end result is kind of what we've seen all year long, especially in the second half. They cannot seal the deal. They cannot get that one more hit. They need to take the lead, and then the bullpen cannot get that one more out they need to close out a game. But honestly, these two games against a team that's now at least headed for a game 163, they're like right there with them. Obviously, they're not on par with the Red Sox in terms of talent or being able to finish the deal. But I mean, they are right there with them. I don't think you cannot say that. They have every opportunity to win both these games late. And as we've seen, this team has not learned how to win games late, unlike the team from two years ago. Yeah, the Nats, they seemingly find a way to do just enough to lose game in, game out. We've seen that a lot over the last few months. We certainly saw that on Saturday. But let's get to the bright spot of the day, the biggest bright spot, although by far, Josiah Gray ending his 2021 season on a high note with maybe his best start of the season. I mean, you'd have to really go back and look at outing by outing, but this was really impressive in a big game against a good team, Josiah Gray goes out there and gives you one run in six innings, gives up just three hits, a homer, a double, and a single, has seven strikeouts versus two walks into wild pitch, throws a bunch of strikes, 60 of his 90 pitches end up being for strikes. Uh, The run he gives up comes in the top of the fourth, a two-out solo homer by Rafael Devers to right center field, despite Devers having been down at one point, one-two. But this was the actual only home run Josiah gives up over his last three starts. For all of the talk about all of the homers he had given up, he actually rather quietly I don't want to say put that to rest over these final three starts, but certainly did a better job in that regard over these final three starts. You know, he got into some trouble top of the first, gives up a one-out double to Kyle Schwarber, issues a one-out wild pitch, issues a one-out six-pitch walk at Xander Bogarts, but he then gets the big 4-6-3 double play off the bat of Rafael Devers, and that play marked a stretch of Gray retiring nine consecutive batters. We saw the struggling Patrick Corbin end his 2021 season in a nice way. Josiah Gray initially good, then bad back to being good over these final three starts and really does a good job of ending his season in fine fashion. I think this was his best start because of the circumstances. I think the stuff in that start in Atlanta where he struck out 10 in five innings, the stuff was better that night. But I think because of who he was facing, what was at stake, everything else, I thought this was his best one. I think he got a lot out of this one. I think the Nationals learned a lot about him in this one. I thought this was a really important start for him in his development. Obviously, getting through the first five with just the one run across is really good. But to me, it was all about the sixth inning, his last inning. We've seen some of his previous starts kind of fall apart there at the end. And in this case, he was teetering, gives up a one-out single to Kike Hernandez. Then he comes back, he strikes out Kyle Schwarber with a fastball. Then a really great battle with Xander Bogart's nine pitches. He ends up walking him. So now he's got to face Rafael Devers, who had homered off him two innings earlier. Pitch count's getting up there. Crowd's into it. This is a big spot. And he got him to pop up to shallow right field to end the inning. And I thought that sequence was really important for a young pitcher learning how to finish his starts against a good lineup that had everything at stake for them. And I think it's a very encouraging way for him to end what I'm going to declare here to have been a good rookie season for the Nationals. So here's the breakdown of the 12 starts. His first five, 2.89 ERA, 1.107 whip. Very good. The next four, 11.42 ERA, 1.962 whip. 
pretty bad. And now we started to have some doubts about him. But his last three, 3.12 ERA, 1.096 whip. So out of 12 starts, that's eight of them that were good. And I think it's important that he started strong and he finished strong. If you're going to have the hiccup, it was in the middle. Shows me he learned a few things. He finished strong. And I thought this was the best outing of them all today. Yeah, it's a nice sample size, too. You know, it's not a Josh Rogers thing where it's only six starts and you're left to kind of wonder, well, what should we make of this? This is 12 starts. This is, you know, almost half a season, essentially, that you get from the guy. So you can sink your teeth into that. You can do some real evaluating with that. Uh, Like you said, Josiah did not hit a wall in this game on Saturday. He did do that in his previous outing, that game, that 5-4 win at Colorado uh, Monday night. Three runs, five and a third innings in that game, five scoreless innings, but then gives up three runs in the bottom of the sixth inning. You didn't get that in this game against Boston. So really good to see that with Josiah Gray. And as much as anything can be a certainty, I mean, he's going to be in that Nats season opening rotation for next year. You know, the way things set up, depending on who's healthy, he might be like your number two starter. You know, I mean, who knows how things go down. I mean, I think he and Patrick Corbin are the two certainties for the rotation next year. Beyond those two, we don't know if Strasburg's healthy. He'll be in the rotation. We had some Strasburg news on Saturday. We'll get to that coming up momentarily. So great job by Josiah Gray. Then you have the Nats bullpen. And I mean, you know, look, we've sung this song many times over the last few months, but in a game in which Davey Martinez again has to use a bunch of guys, five relievers, you get Tanner Rainey and Mason Thompson combining to give up four runs in the top of the ninth inning. This game was really funny that this was a one nothing game. This was a game for which the first, I want to say like six innings flew by. And then the last three innings, boy, I mean, that was 2021 baseball in a nutshell. It was just painful. You had a parade of relievers. You had guys who could not throw strikes. Interesting spot with Rainey. So Kyle Finnegan begins the top of the eighth inning. Yet Austin both tossing a perfect top of the seventh with the strikeouts of J.D. Martinez and Hunter Renfro. Both look good. Finnegan begins the top of the eighth back-to-back strikeouts, but then issues back-to-back two-out walks of Kike Hernandez and Kyle Schwarber sandwiched around a wild pitch, gets yanked from the game. So Finnegan gets yanked from the game without completing the eighth inning. Rainey comes in. uh, He's able to get the job done ultimately to close out that eighth inning, although not before issuing a four-pitch walk of Xander Bogarts to load the bases. But Rainey and what ends up being a four-run Red Sox ninth has all kinds of problems. Lead off 10-pitch walk of J.D. Martinez, who was down at 1.02. Then do come back-to-back strikeouts of Alex Verdugo and Hunter Renfro. But then Rainey gives up a two-out first pitch RBI triple by Christian Vasquez to right center field for a 2-1 Red Sox lead. Then gives up a two-out RBI single by Travis Shaw to left center for a 3-1 Red Sox lead. And then came the adventures of Mason Thompson in the top of the ninth inning. Mason comes into the game runner on first two outs, Nats down 3-1, and Mason was horrendous, okay? There's no other way to say this. He faced three batters. He got no outs. Thompson, on his second pitch of the game, gives up a two-out, two-run homer by Kike Hernandez to left field for a 5-1 Red Sox lead. The homer going a projected 401 feet per stat cast. And then comes maybe the moment of the game if not the season in terms of the Nats bullpen, Mason Thompson issues a two-out, four-pitch walk of Red Sox reliever, Austin Davis, okay? So A, this is a reliever. Relief pitchers almost never bat, but B, this is an American League reliever. Those people especially never bat, and Mason Thompson walks the guy on four pitches. Then he gives up a two-out single by Xander Bogarts, and Davey yanks Mason from the game, says, get out, I don't want to see you anymore. And then Ryan Harper comes into the game and mercifully gets the final out to conclude that four-run Red Sox ninth. But geez, man, Mason Thompson, please help us. He could not help the Nets on Saturday. 
there is so much to unpack here <laughs> with these relief appearances, but let's start with that. Truly the low point of all the low points. And the only reason that Austin Davis is batting there, he wasn't originally, they actually announced a pinch hitter for him, at least in the press box. Because of the home run, all of a sudden they're up by four runs. And so Alex Cora is saying, well, hang on, I don't have to go to my closer. So let me go ahead and let my reliever just bat for himself. He's not going to swing the bat. He's just saying, we're up now four runs. Just stand up there, take your three strikes, come back and take the mound to pitch the bottom of the ninth. And he didn't have to swing the bat because he didn't even get a pitch in the strike zone. And if you're Mason Thompson, you can't even recognize. You literally just have to groove three pitches over the plate and the inning will be over and could not do it. The irony then after all that is that Davis, who ends up running the bases, comes back to pitch the bottom of the ninth and can't finish the bottom of the ninth, possibly because he was gassed at this point. There was a lot of wacky stuff going on here. So you know how we always talk about Wander Suero, there's good Suero and bad Suero. I think Mason Thompson, there's good Mason and bad Mason, and bad Mason is really, really bad and cannot figure it out. Once he's lost it, it's not coming back. And this was perfect evidence of that. That was really ugly. All right. Before all that, Finnegan the two walks in the eighth, that now forces Rainey to have to come in to get the final out of the eighth. He issues a four-pitch walk of Bogarts before he then comes through with a big strikeout of Devers on a 99-mile-an-hour fastball at the knees. That was a huge out in what was still a one-to-nothing game at that point. The problem is, after all that, he's got to come back out for another inning, and you do worry a little bit, okay, how much does he have left in the tank at that point? And so now you got to lead off walk, two strikeouts. And by the time we get to the Vasquez triple, Rainey's up to about 30 pitches overall across two innings. And you do figure he's probably out of gas at that point. So there was this stretch there. It was actually 10 consecutive batters for the Red Sox from the top of the seventh into the top of the ninth, 10 straight batters in which nobody put the ball in play, six strikeouts and four walks, not a single ball in play in that time. And it's the walks. We've talked about it over and over again, especially with this bullpen The walks are killing them. And it's not just about the free passes, putting the guys on base, about prolonging innings. It's about building up pitch counts and putting Davey Martinez in a spot where he has to make mid-inning changes, ask guys to go multiple innings so that all that leads up to the point that Tanner Rainey is on fumes and gives up a triple and then everything that happened after that to cost them the game. Yeah, I mean... You think about this bullpen and you try as a Nats fan to say, okay, who is a piece moving forward? And it's just so difficult to believe in any of these guys truly moving forward. Like, I know that they're not all going to be gone. Many, if not most of these guys will be back next year. I mean, there's only so much change you can engineer in an offseason But it's really hard to have faith in any of these guys. Like, I would presume Mason Thompson is back next year. But what gives anyone belief that Mason Thompson is anything other than another Wander Suero type, than another one of these 50-50 guys who sometimes has it, but many times doesn't? And when he doesn't have it, it's ugly. I mean, this was ugly on Saturday. This, This was like a special kind of bad what you ended up getting from him. And I know with the bullpen, there is a thing of starters haven't gone long in games this year, and that has taxed the bullpen. And there's certainly truth in that. But what I think is also true is this just isn't a very good bullpen. Like, I think both things can be true. The bullpen has been overused, but the bullpen isn't very good to begin with. If the bullpen was good, we would have seen better over these last few months, even with the uh, leaning on the bullpen to the extent that Davey has had to lean on it. Nationals relievers now on the season have a 5.05 ERA, okay? I mean, that is just so bad. And that's not just about the starting pitching. Like, it's about the people in the bullpen. So 
I don't know what the fix is. You know, this has been, dance has been danced many times over the years by the Nats and Mike Rizzo and how do you address the bullpen? And if you bring veterans in on decent money contracts, they don't work out. And if you do nothing, then people say, well, why didn't you do anything? But I think if there is a particular disappointment with Nats pitching over the two months since the sell-off, it's that trying to identify future pieces for the bullpen, I don't know that you've identified anyone, to be honest with you. Yeah, I don't disagree with you on any of that. So here's the one thing that I would say that could make a difference. I think they go out and get two experienced relievers to pitch late in games, like a Brad Hand and a Daniel Hudson, those kind of pitchers, doesn't have to be those two, those kind of guys on one-year deals, veterans. As we know, there's no guarantee that they're going to be good. Relievers are volatile year to year. We know that. But if you do that and you go into next season and say, you guys are our eighth and ninth inning. And now Rainey and Finnegan are in more of a setup role and not having to pitch all the time in those spots. And then everybody else falls in line behind them. You're now taking pressure off a lot of these inexperienced guys as far as what innings they're pitching, how significant those are, and how often you have to use them. I would be interested to see, do any of them look better when they are now the third, fourth, fifth relievers in the pen as opposed to the first, second, third relievers in the pen? I think there's a domino effect and it would make a difference. So if there's anything to do that to me would be the way to go about it. You're not going to spend big money. I would not sign guys to multi-year deals because there's no telling how you sustain that. And, and, you know, the odds of, you know, somebody having two, three good years in a row are probably not that high. But I think there's enough decent relievers out there. You can pay some guys for one year, pay them decent money to close out games, pitch the eighth and ninth innings. I think there's a domino effect that helps the young guys. And Either the team gets better, or even if they're in the same position again, now you flip them at the trade deadline and get more pieces for the future. So to me, that would be the smart play here. I think it would have benefits in multiple ways. Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably the way to do it. Of course, the problem is you can sign who you think is good, and then that person can come here and not be good. I mean, was Brad Hand good ultimately for the Nats? I mean, it's it's mixed. I, I mean, first there was a period of time in which he was good, but there were also stretches in which he was really bad. You know, and I mean, Brad Hand, as we know, ended up getting DFA'd by Toronto. So you don't know. Like the Brad Hand signing to me is so emblematic of this whole thing. The signing made all the sense of the world. He had been a reliable reliever over multiple seasons, and he comes here for this season, and he wasn't reliable. At times, he was good. At times, he wasn't. You know, like Will Harris. This is another one. Will Harris had an excellent reputation prior to signing with the Nationals. Consistent, durable. I mean, there was a lot to like. He was older, but the signing made sense. And the signing has been an abject failure so far. Now, he's still under contract for next year. I don't know, maybe finally delivers on that. But it's like, you don't know what to think. So like, yeah, find yourself two guys who you think are going to be good for next year. But it's a coin flip whether those guys end up being good for you. You're right. But I would take the chance because... I think it's worth the risk, especially on a team that, you know, if you do get guys that end up blowing saves for you, well, big deal. You're not trying to win next year anyways, in all likelihood. And if it does take some of the pressure off the others, then I think in the long run, it, it will benefit them. But that's the direction I would go. It's the only way I can see, because I think as we're seeing here, unless you've got blue chip prospects, you know, you've got the next big name, young closer in the game, and they don't really seem to have that you're putting guys in spots that you're kind of, you're sort of setting them up to fail by asking these guys to pitch these so many innings of consequence late in games before they're really ready for it. I'm not faulting Davey. He used who he had at his availability. So I don't know what his alternative was. But if I'm Mike Rizzo, one of my top goals this winter is to try to bring in a handful of experienced relievers And I think it will make a difference for the rest of them because now you only need a handful of these other ones to pan out. 
and you're putting them into a little bit lower pressure situation and not asking as much of them as they had to ask this year. Hey, Nats fans, are you looking to buy or sell a home or an investment property? If so, contact Jamie Coppersmith and the Coppersmith Group at McInerney Associates. A huge Nats fan right from the get-go in 2005, Jamie has repeatedly been recognized by Washingtonian Magazine as a top-producing real estate agent across the DMV. Referred to by a client as a Jedi Master of Real Estate, he will bring his expertise to bear on your behalf, helping you understand and navigate this challenging real estate market. Jamie is a five-tool agent who is as patient as Juan Soto at the plate. He has his own version of Moneyball, a strategic and statistical market-based analysis that balanced with a deep respect for your specific real estate needs, goals, and timeline. So, whether buying or selling, call Jamie Coppersmith today at 202-525-7471 or visit his website at thecoppersmithgroup.com. That's Coppersmith with a K. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Range into the belt. The 2-2 pitch is in there. Strike three called. Mercer into an argument with a home plate umpire, Phil Cuzzy, saying it's low. And Mercer really upset right there with Phil Cuzzy. Knows he can't get thrown out of the game. There, and he's been thrown out of the game. And now who's going to play second base? Strange game for the Nats offensively in this 5-3 loss to the Red Sox at Nationals Park on Saturday. Literally nothing was happening for like the first two-thirds of the game. The Nationals were in the midst of not just being no hit, but of being perfect gamed. And the Nats don't get their first base runner until the returning Gerardo Parra comes through with a pinch hit. So the Nats on Saturday put Josh Rogers on the 10-day injured list with a right hamstring strain. Oh, golly gee, isn't that convenient? He makes his final start of the season. Oh, my hamstring is hurting. Oh, okay, we'll make a roster move. So Josh goes on the 10-day IL, and then that's reinstate Gerardo Parra, who had been on the 10-day IL since September 5th due to right knee inflammation. I don't know if this was his final plate appearance as a Nat or even as a major leaguer, but if it was, this is a nice way to go out. Swing and a line drive to left. That's going to fall in. A base hit. Fielded by Verdugo, he plays it into second, and Gerardo Parra is the first man to reach today for the Nationals with a pinch hit single here in the bottom of the sixth inning. The baby shark comes up to bat. Red Sox are in the midst of a perfect game bid here, 
It was reminiscent of what he did in his Nats regular season debut this year, that 5-2 win over the Mets at Nats Park June 20th. Para in his first plate appearance for the Nats this year at the Major League level, the pinch went out opposite field double into the left field corner. Here's the pitch. Swing a line drive, base hit left field, down the line, toward the corner. Para rounding first, heading for second. It's a double for Gerardo Para. in a two-run national seventh. Maybe the loudest Nats Park has been this season. I don't know. You'd have to think about that, but kind of a nice bookend if, in fact, it was the end for Para with the Nats this season and maybe in Para's career. It was kind of the perfect setup, and you're thinking to yourself, you know, when they announce earlier in the day that they're activating him, you're like, oh my God, are we we really going to try this again? Like, what's going to happen? No, you know what? It turned out perfectly because he comes up, the crowd goes nuts for him, and he gets the single and he ends the perfect game bid. And as nice as it would be to say, okay, he should walk away after that, I think he's going to get another at bat on Sunday would be my guess. We're going to talk about Sunday's game here before we're done. There's a lot of stuff that's going to be going on on Sunday as well. And my guess is that Gerardo Parr will find his way in there at some point for another pinch hit appearance. But that was a nice moment and they needed it because they were in kind of serious danger there of taking a perfect game bit deep into the game. They were also bailed out, I guess, in a way by Alex Cora, who pulled his starter, Tanner Houck, after five innings. The guy hadn't been stretched out. He had just pitched out of the bullpen a few days ago. So I get it. He wasn't going to go the distance. That wasn't going to happen. But only 53 pitches. I mean, he was cruising. I would have thought you'd try to get one more inning out of him. It ultimately didn't cost the Red Sox. But boy, I mean, that feels like so long ago because so many other things happened. But yeah, with two outs in the sixth inning, the Nats were in danger of having a perfect game thrown against them. Yeah. Like, oh, by the way, that almost happened. So if we take things sequentially, then in the bottom of the seventh inning, we get a Jordy Mercer moment. So Jordy Mercer was an at starting second baseman for a second time in as many games in this series. It turns out that Luis Garcia is dealing with soreness in his rib cage. So that's why we haven't seen Luis so far in this series. Mercer goes 0 for 3 with a strikeout in this game and gets ejected. He comes up to bat in the bottom of the seventh with the bases loaded, two outs, and the Nats trailing one nothing. strikes out looking on five pitches, and then gets ejected from the game. Now, there are two things to this. Number one, the pitch on which he was called out on strikes was a strike. I mean, it was close, but it was a strike, Jordy, okay? Like, you're not Ted Williams, you're not Juan Soto. That was a strike, dude, okay? But the other thing is, he really put the Nats in a bad spot in getting tossed right there. Luis Garcia presumably is not available. You don't have another second baseman. Davey ends up putting Lane Thomas at second base, puts Josh Bell in left field. Ryan Zimmerman goes to first base. It's another exposing of the Nationals' lack of depth, yes. But, you know, here's a veteran in Jordy Mercer who shouldn't be playing to begin with. He had no business getting tossed like that in that spot. that, That, to me, was very disappointing that he did that. You've got to think to yourself, I don't want to get tossed here. And he kept talking and talking to the umpire. I felt like the umpire gave him some leeway. And eventually, what's the ump going to do? Like, you're not supposed to argue balls and strikes. Mercer gets tossed and Davey again gets put in a rough spot. Absolutely. I was about to say Phil Cuzzy gave him plenty of rope to say his piece and then walk off. And Jordy kept going and he left him with no choice but to do it. And you are right. He absolutely has to know the situation. When you take the field at the start of the game, you have to know I cannot have to leave this game for any reason because we do not have another second baseman who's healthy and available to play, unless you want to count Alex Avila, and 
thankfully it didn't come to that once again. Yeah, you have to know better. He's been around long enough. He's got to know. And even if it was a truly bad call, which it was not, you say your piece, you know what you can get away with. He let you say something and then you walk away. And that could have really, really come back to haunt them. And again, I get it. The Nats are in it, but these games matter. These games don't just matter to the Red Sox. These games matter to the Yankees, to the Mariners, and the Blue Jays as well. And if somehow the Red Sox won this game because they had the Nationals had an outfielder playing second base at the end of a close game, we talk about the integrity of the schedule and all that stuff. Like, that's not good for anything in baseball. So that could have really blown up in their faces. Bad move. So remember I mentioned to you earlier that stretch of 10 straight Red Sox batters and none of them put the ball in play? That all happened with Lane Thomas at second base. And so they almost got through it without any ball coming anywhere. And then he did wind up getting a ball hit to him while he's like shifted into the shallow right field. And he made the play and he did a nice job on it. He had played second base once. It was earlier this year with the Cardinals. It was at the very end of a blowout game. And it only happened because Matt Carpenter, their usual second baseman, was pitching in a blowout. So this season at second base, Alex Avila and Lane Thomas. That's a good trivia question for years down the line. (laughs) Those who played second for the Nats in 2021. And uh, Humberto Arteaga, let's not forget. That's right. We can never forget that name for sure. So the Nats, they don't get any runs in the bottom of the seventh. They do get a run in the bottom of the eighth, but boy, could that inning have been even grander. So the inning gets going truly with a one-out double by Ryan Zimmerman on a ball that got lost in the twilight by the Red Sox center fielder Hunter Renfro. I mean, this was a gift from the baseball gods, this double, but hey, good for Zim. You then get back-to-back one-out walks, Lane Thomas and Dalcides Escobar. Juan Soto comes up with the bases loaded and one out. Nats are down one nothing. This set up so perfectly. You're like, wow. You know, Soto been a little quiet lately. This would be like the perfect capper to his MVP season. He was so amped up for this at-bat. He, very early in the plate appearance, did a Soto shuffle and pretty clearly mouthed to the reliever, which who was Austin Davis, who replaced Adam Adovino, he was like, come on, let's go. Like He was fired up, Soto was. And then he smashes the baseball, but it ends up being a deep fly out to center field. He barely misses a grand slam. Nats tie the game at one, although on the play, Alcides Escobar almost gets thrown out at second base. So you have that going on in that spot. Davis coming set. First base side of the rubber, kicks, delivers the pitch. Swing and a drive, center field. Renfro going back, still back, has a play. Edge of the warning track, makes the catch. All of the runners will tag, throw to second. Escobar sliding in, safe. Zimmerman scores, the game is tied. Thomas over to third. But yeah, you only get the one run, and then Josh Bell has a first pitch line out, and that ends up ending the inning. But oh, what could have been in that eighth inning? There was so much going on in this game, in the final innings of this game. It's the Greek tragedy almost. The amount of words I had to write in my game story, you know, at the sixth inning mark, I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be a nice, simple Josiah Gray had a good, solid finish to his season story. And he ends up being an afterthought because of everything else that happened. So the Soto at bat itself, there's all kinds of stuff here. There was jawing back and forth. Apparently, Juan had called time a couple times before the first pitch. And Davis may have said something at him, and that's what got Soto fired up. And after the game, Juan revealed some things about what he felt about the situation. He started talking trash to me, and my mindset just changed to kick his (laughs) That's what I'm going for. Who was talking trash to you? The pitcher. 
and uh, some pretty strong words from him facing a reliever that none of us had ever heard of before. And oh my God, did he just miss that pitch? I mean, he just missed it. And Soto himself even said that he thought the pitcher got lucky in the end because he just missed it. And I mean, the crowd was stirred up. It was half of them were going to explode one way or the other. And off the bat, everybody thought it was gone. It sounded like it. Just that initial trajectory, you thought that he got it and he just got under it. And maybe on a warmer night, it would have carried more. But oh man, what a moment that was. And then, like you said, if Escobar gets thrown out, I think it would have actually been before Zimmerman crossed the plate. It might have wiped out the run. That run doesn't matter. The go-ahead runs at third. That's not, just not important there. So much stuff happens in that situation. And Josh Bell hits a ball hard right after that, just happened to be right at the shortstop. So, I mean, a crazy little sequence there. And yet so fitting for this team that they always have put themselves in a position to do it at the end of the game. And they always just come up short, especially with the bases loaded. They just come up short. And it just, everything about from that point on, it just felt so appropriate for these 2021 Nationals. Yeah, they do just enough to lose these games. Like it really feels that way, game in, game out. But the Nats were not done. Bottom of the ninth inning, Nats go into it 5-1. I mean, I think the Nats would be forgiven if they just kind of tapped out in that ninth inning. But they didn't. The boys battled, scored two runs. Kbert Ruiz, leadoff walk. Andrew Stevenson, who all of a sudden is home run happy, a two-run bomb to put the Nats deficit at just two at 5-3. Nats or maybe possibly in business, then do come back-to-back outs. Then Ryan Zimmerman works a walk, but then Lane Thomas flies out to end the game. So a few things with this inning. Number one, I had to laugh with this. So in a game in which you had all kinds of things going on, Jordy Mercer rejected, you know, uh, Luis Garcia not available, etc. Davey is going to have Riley Adams pinch hit for Ryan Harper, right? Riley Adams, who never plays anymore, is buried beyond buried on that bench for reasons I will never understand. Adams is going to bat, and then the Red Sox make a pitching change and Davey replaces Adams with Yadiel Hernandez. And I wanted to scream when I saw this. Riley Adams can't even pinch hit right now. He gets pinch hit for when he's about to pinch hit. So that cracked me up in the inning. And then the other thing is Carter Keboom. And to me, we got to talk about Carter Keboom. Uh, I am not a mind reader, okay? And I don't like to do the thing of this guy is quit, that guy is quit, because I don't know what's going on in someone's head. It's hard to differentiate between lack of effort and lack of execution. But boy, If you want to make a case for a guy quitting right now, or a a guy at least kind of being checked out, it sure looks like Carter Keboom may be, may be in that realm. He goes 0 for 4 with two strikeouts in this game. Bottom of the eighth, he strikes out on three pitches. All three strikes are called strikes. Bottom of the ninth, he strikes out on four pitches for the second out. All three strikes are called strikes. The bat doesn't leave his shoulders over those final two plate appearances. And the compare and contrast to me is, okay, what Keboom does in that ninth inning, and then what the next guy does, Ryan Zimmerman, okay? Ryan Zimmerman, who has nothing to prove to anyone, comes up in this game with two outs in the ninth, works an eight-pitch walk. That's fighting, okay? That's battling. That's working a plate appearance. Not what we've seen with Keboom. And again, I don't know what's happening with Keboom, okay? So I don't want to just crush the guy, but it sure looks like he may be checked out on the year. He's in a terrible rut right now, And uh, it's just very disappointing to see his season ending the way that it's ending. So I don't know either what exactly it is. And, you know, I don't want to try to speculate that, but I will say he looks lost up there for whatever the reason may be. He looks lost. Every at bat, he's down 0-2. He's taking fastballs down the middle. 
He's not even hitting the ball out of the infield for the most part. And there's time for them to have these discussions and time for us to discuss what this is ultimately going to mean. But to me, over the last week or so, he is basically giving the Nationals their out. He's basically saying, putting them in a position where they're going to say, we need to go find another third baseman. There was that brief little couple of weeks there that you thought, oh, hey, we're starting to see something. Maybe maybe there's something there. And instead, he is ending this on such a low note. And when you look at that in totality now, from what they have seen from him at the big league level over parts of the last three seasons, there is very little reason right now, if you're the Nationals, very little for you to point to, to say, yes, we should go into next season and make him our third baseman again. There's even the question of, should you even put yourself in the spot where he's competing for that job again? We already kind of speculated this you know, a while back about what positions might they look to make uh, moves at this winter. It seems pretty clear to me this is number one on the list. Among their eight starting position players, it's third base. And he has had every opportunity to give them a reason to stick with him. And right now, he has given them almost no reason to stick with him at all. Carter Keboom in 105 career games has a batting average of 196, an on-base percentage of 302, a slugging percentage of 281. Uh, it's always possible it eventually clicks because sometimes it takes a while. But you like to see signs that it may click. You like to see, okay, give us something. Like Luis Garcia over the last month has given you something, you know? So you say, okay, like we can operate with this. Carter's not giving you that something. And when you combine that with the defensive issues, it's just getting harder and harder to mount the horse of got to give him more time. You know, he's a first round pick and that may be the only thing saving him at this point that you don't want to concede that you blew it with this pick. But the Nats may well have blown it with this pick. We'll see. But I don't like the looks of these plate appearances. And for those who watch the game on Masson, you know, you watch these games, you learn to speak Bob and FP, and you can tell what they're trying to say when, even when they don't say things. And FP made a comment about Keyboom that was essentially, the bat's not even leaving his shoulders, you know? And, and you could tell that FP is like, this guy's not even up there fully engaged, or so it seems. Again, we don't know, okay? So, like, I'm not trying to read minds here, but it just doesn't look like he's fully engaged right now, and disappointing to see that. <laughs> I think Hickey's been great. You know, Hickey's, Hickey's voice has been heard. He does a great job of communicating pitches day in and day out. He's always on the field with these guys. He's always communicating with these guys. He's done some things to help pitchers mechanically. He's taught some pitchers different grips on uh, on sliders and and, uh, and change-ups. All right, so there's news that we got to get into here. So first of all, Davey Martinez in his pregame press conference with you guys, two very interesting nuggets a very strong vote of confidence for pitching coach Jim Hickey. And essentially, Davey said Hickey's going to be back as pitching coach for next season. So that stood out. We also got a Steven Strasburg update. It's been a long time since we heard anything about Strasburg. It's it's been uh, almost cryptic. Like we haven't heard much at all since the surgery. But Davey said that Strasburg is going to begin throwing on November 2nd. He looks great. Uh, He's he's slimmed down a lot. and, And he's trying to get down weight. He's throwing, you know, he's not throwing yet, but he's getting ready to start throwing November 2nd. Uh, but his, he's doing, he said he feels really, really good. So that's, that's exciting for us. Just to reestablish the timeline, Strasburg underwent that season ending surgery to address the uh, thoracic outlet syndrome in late July, but sounded like things are progressing well, or at least as well as, you know, you can know at this point without him having thrown. But what'd you make of that? Sounds like Hickey will in fact be back and Strasburg going to start throwing in early November. 
So let's start with Strasbourg. I wouldn't say I'm surprised by any of that. That's kind of the timeline, I think, of what they were looking at. And we can also look at Will Harris, who's much farther along in his timeline from his comparable surgery, and he's been throwing for a while now. So November 2nd, that's maybe a little earlier. I might have thought it'd be more like December that he would start ramping up. But the idea is that he comes to spring training and he's fully ready to go. And now they put him on the mound and they see what they have. So look, this is the first of a lot of steps that have to happen before we can say that he's coming all the way back from the surgery. So I'm not going to jump the gun here or say that this is, you know, a great sign or, you know, I'm assuming nothing still with this, but it's better than the alternative, which would be like, yeah, we're not really sure when he's going to start throwing and we got to have to wait a while for this and that. So yeah, that's all good. The fact he's in good physical shape. Okay, that's great. Lovely. But, you know, there are 10 more things for him to get to on the checklist before we get to opening day of next season. And every one of them could be a minefield along the way. And so every time he picks up a ball in spring training, we're all going to be watching him. We're going to be all over him and scrutinizing everything. And then if everything goes well, we're going to say, okay, let's check back in five days and see how he looks now this time. And it's just going to be this way until the season starts and he's actually pitching and he's pitching every fifth day and he's not shaking his arm around and he's not wincing and he's having success and we're not having any of these conversations. So there's a long way to go. But so far, so good. So we like that. All right. As far as Jim Hickey goes, I was a little surprised that Davey said it as forcefully as he did. He was asked just kind of a generic question about his thoughts on the job that Hickey has done this year. And he gave a pretty full-throated endorsement of him in saying what he believes that he's really worked with these guys, helping them, trying to help them get better putting in all kinds of hours to try to solve problems, basically saying like, hey, whatever our pitching struggles have been this year, don't blame the coach for that. So it started with that. Then there was a follow-up essentially asking him, so are you saying that he's definitely coming back next year? And Davey said yes. And I was surprised that he didn't maybe talk his way around that a little bit because he then was asked about the entire coaching staff, if they'll all be back. And he said what you would more expect the answer to be, which is, Mike Rizzo and I are going to be meeting on Monday. We're going to go over a lot of stuff. And these are all the things that we're going to consider. So, I mean, I'm going to take him at his word. And I think if Jim Hickey's job was in trouble, Davey wouldn't come out and say that. Or if the GM wanted to change pitching coaches, well, he's now in a tough spot because the manager just said that he's coming back. So I would be surprised if that suddenly changes. But the fact that he didn't give the full endorsement for everyone else on the coaching staff makes me think there could be some other changes coming. So it it was pretty interesting. There was a lot there. And ultimately, Davey's kind of point here was, don't just look at the pitching staff, look at the defense, which I think he makes an excellent point. They were one of the higher rated defensive teams in the first half of the year. And after the trade deadline, they're way down there. They've fallen to the middle of the pack in terms of total defense. And he thinks they go hand in hand, that the defense has let down the pitching in a lot of cases. And then obviously what we've seen with the bullpen, where it's a completely new group there of guys or inexperienced and never been to that spot before. So we've talked about Jim Hickey. We can say from our vantage point, are there things that you would have liked to see more improvement from him, from his pitchers along the way? I think we could say Josiah Gray turned it around. That's a good sign. You would hope that the pitching coach had something to do with that. Patrick Corbin kind of turned it around at the end somewhat. Maybe that is attributable in some way to the pitching coach. But I think Davey's answer essentially was like, hey, There's a lot of issues. Like he's not trying to sugarcoat it. He says he knows their pitching staff has been a major, major problem. But he's basically saying like, don't blame the coach for that. There are other reasons for it. So a few things. With the defense, Davey's right. But the pitching was bad before the defense declined. Now, you had like a stretch, I remember, for a few weeks 
where the starting pitching was good. But beyond that, the starting pitching has been a mess for most of this year. So you really, there's only so much you can do with the defense thing. Like the pitching's been bad basically throughout the season. And if your name isn't Max Scherzer, you've had problems this season as a Nationals pitcher. Also, it doesn't matter what kind of defense you have when you're walking batters all over the place. Yeah, right. (laughs) Right. So, I mean, you know, that sounds nice to say that, but, you know, that really only goes so far. I think the politics of the Jim Hickey thing are really interesting. So Hickey is Davey's guy. We know that. Davey, this past offseason, for maybe the first time in his managerial tenure, got to pick his staff, or at the very least, got to pick certain guys on his staff. It doesn't look good at all for Davey if maybe his first slash top handpicked guy is a failure to where he's out after one season. So it is in Davey's best interest for Jim Hickey to succeed, certainly to last for more than one season. I would love to know this. Did Davey say this on Saturday because he has been told that Jim Hickey is coming back? Or did Davey say this on Saturday because he wants Jim Hickey to come back? Did Davey put Mike Rizzo back into a corner with what Davey said on Saturday? I'd love to know what Mike Rizzo's reaction was to what Davey had to say. And maybe Rizzo's reaction is, yeah, Jim Hickey's coming back. We've had those conversations. Or maybe Rizzo's reaction is, Davey, what are you doing, bro? We haven't talked about that just yet. Because that could make for an interesting battle. Mike Rizzo versus Davey this offseason and Mike not being happy with certain things and Mike wanting to make some changes. Now, it's all speculation. We don't know. Maybe Rizzo loves Hickey. There's a lot we don't know about Jim Hickey. Maybe he's doing everything great and it's not at all his fault what has happened with the pitching this year. But, you know, you look at the Nats, you see how bad the pitching has been. You have a pitching coach who's in his first season with the team. It's only natural to wonder if that has been a part of this. So, We'll see. But I would love to know that. What was the impetus for Davey saying that? Because Davey knows Hickey's coming back or Davey wants Hickey to come back. And so Davey said that to make it more difficult to part ways with Jim Hickey. Yeah. So my interpretation of it, I feel like Davey was caught a little off guard. Like he wasn't expecting that question as as direct as it was. And that's why I said I was a little surprised he didn't couch it in a way that was sort of like a hey, I believe in this guy. He's an accomplished pitching coach. I don't blame him for what's happened this year, but we're going to sit down on Monday and we're going to talk about everything with this organization and what we need to do to move forward. So there was a way for him to answer that diplomatically without committing to it. It felt a little bit like he was caught off guard and just said it. Now, I don't know. Maybe he does, has known all along and maybe he has the full authority and maybe Mike Rizzo has the full support as well. By the way, we are going to talk to Mike Rizzo before Sunday's game. So we are going to get a season wrap up with him. So there's a lot of stuff to ask him about. And I'm sure we'll be discussing this on the final episode of the season here, Sunday night into Monday morning. But it is a fascinating dynamic. Like you said, this is sort of his handpicked pitching coach. After they chose to let go of the pitching coach who had been in the organization for a long time, helped them win a World Series. Now, we haven't really talked a lot about Paul Menhart, but one thing that it's kind of occurred to me and other people have mentioned this to me along the way as well. Paul Menhart, after being let go, wasn't picked up by another major league organization. He wound up as the pitching coach of an independent league team this year. So I don't know what that says. There's a little bit part of me that says if he was that highly thought of and coming off being the pitching coach of a World Series champion, wouldn't somebody have picked him up? Because he he got let go fairly early in the offseason. So that was a little strange. But, you know, you're right. This was Davey Martinez's guy who he's known for a long time, and he brought him in. And it's a really bad look if after one year you're making another change. So there could be that dynamic at play as well. But look, Jim Hickey's had a long career as a pitching coach, and has had some success. So let's not make him out to be something that he's not. But because of the way this year went, it's only natural to look at it and say, what kind of changes need to be made? In any way, do we have to look at the pitching coach? 
Yeah, and that, and that's all we're saying. I don't think Jim Hickey took you know stupid pills before the start of the season, and like that's why the pitching staff is bad. But it's just you've had this revolving door of pitching coach for the Nationals over the last few years, and you know you're just like, well, does the door need to revolve at least one more time? You know, we don't know, but it may well be that Jim Hickey's done a great job, and that none of this is his fault. Again, there's a lot with something like this we don't know. Well, one more game for the Nationals in this 2021 season. We finally do know who the Nats' starting pitcher will be in game 162. The man will be Yoan Adon, a Nationals prospect from AAA Rochester is going to be called up for this game. Chris Sale is going to be going for the Boston Red Sox. So Yoan Adon is the Nationals' number 22 prospect for MLB Pipeline right now, a spot ahead of Mason Denneberg, interestingly, two spots ahead of Seth Romero, interestingly, Man, uh, is Seth Romero ever going to be at the major league level for any length of time? Uh, I guess that's a question to be answered at another time. So Adon is another one of these guys from the Dominican Republic. Nat signed him as an amateur free agent in July 2016. This is his age 22 season. He's listed as being 6'2", 242 pounds. Nice shot for him. Good shot. I know Davey said Paolo Espino and Eric Fetty will be available. I I don't know realistically how much you're going to get from Adon. But it'll be interesting to see what he has to offer for the Nets on Sunday. Yeah. So um, remember the other day I mentioned I heard there was a chance they might be calling someone up and you were kind of peppering me with some names and I didn't want to say it because I didn't have it really locked down. Well, this was the name, Joanna Doan. And the reason I didn't say it was because I sensed that maybe they wouldn't make that move if the game still meant something to the Red Sox. Well, the game does mean something to the Red Sox. Now, they can't be eliminated on Sunday. They've guaranteed themselves at least a spot in a tiebreaker game. So there's maybe a little bit you know, less at stake, I suppose you could say, from that standpoint. But I'm a little surprised that they're going to do it. But this is a pitcher they want to see. It's somebody they've talked about for a while who they believe is going to be part of their future at some point coming up. You know, They owe it to themselves to now get a look at him. Now, I think the leash is going to be pretty short. I'm not thinking they're going out there and saying, hey, go give us six innings and 100 pitches. They have Paolo, who's available to back him up at any point. Like we said, Fetty and a bunch of other relievers they can go to if they need it. Interestingly enough, the kid making his Major League debut is going to have a catcher in his final Major League game. Alex Avila is going to start behind the plate for his final Major League game and work with the kid. Ryan Zimmerman provided that he came out of this game, which he played a little more than they were anticipating, that he comes out of it healthy. He's going to be in the lineup for the last game of the season. We don't know how many more, if any, he will have after this one. So there's a lot going on for Sunday in a game that, like I said, still does mean a lot to the Red Sox. And this kid who had one start at AAA, and it was really good, four scoreless with seven strikeouts, but he spent the majority of the season at single A in Wilmington. A few starts at double A and now one at triple A. He's going to make his major league debut in game 162 against a Red Sox team trying to clinch a postseason berth. Wow. The reason it isn't Romero is what? They just don't like what they're seeing from him? Uh, yeah, I think, you know, he had injuries this year. They were trying starting to get him to build back up again. And I'm not sure that they are convinced that he is the real deal, both because of the performance and everything else that he's dealt with over the years. Doesn't mean we won't ever see him again. But I think especially they maybe don't feel like he is equipped to handle the pressure of pitching that kind of game. Okay. Now, I don't know much about Yoan Adon, but it does say something that they feel that he is more equipped to deal with this situation than maybe Seth Romero would have been. Uh, I think it does. 
So Seth Romero, the reason I keep bringing him up, he was a number 25 pick in the 2017 draft. On August 24th of this year, when the Nats promoted Cade Cavalli from AA Harrisburg to AAA Rochester, Nats also promoted Seth Romero to AAA Rochester. And it's not that Romero had great numbers, although he did have great strikeout numbers, but you felt like maybe finally this guy who's had all sorts of behavioral problems was getting his act together. And I thought that he might be a candidate for this game 162, but obviously he will not be pitching in it. So we shall see. You know, it strikes me, one of the things that I think really epitomizes how old the Nets are as a team, you could have three guys playing their final games in their careers this weekend. Ryan Zimmerman, Gerardo Parra, and Alex Avila. Avila for sure. Parra maybe, Zimmerman maybe. But man, I mean, does that not crystallize this team and the age on it? Do we know if Jordy Mercer's coming back next year? And Jordy Mercer too. He's probably yeah. going to be at second base. I'm assuming that Garcia is not coming back to play another game. I don't think they want to take a chance with him. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty remarkable when you think about that. Yeah, not in a good way. And uh, I guess Riley Adams will be sweeping the floors on Sunday. I mean, my God, can this guy get in a game? I mean, I've never seen anything like this in my life, but whatever. All right. uh, You can always tweet us at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. I want to thank a few people here. Kathy Morgan sent us a very nice email, a big listener to the Nats Chat Podcast. She says, I can't always read the paper, but I can almost always find a way to listen to Nats Chat. Very nice, Kathy. We really appreciate that. And I want to thank someone who has been maybe our most consistent tweeter throughout the year. She every day tweets out like a summary of the previous day's podcast, or I guess the podcast for that day. But Susan H. has been great throughout the year. She puts out these very smart, sometimes even funny tweets, kind of recapping our episodes and uh, I just want to thank her for that. She's, she's obviously a loyal listener, and uh, it's been very nice reading her tweets throughout the season. Yes, thank you, Susan. I, I enjoy, I know you and Tim also enjoy when her tweet comes out every day, and we get to see how she crams everything into <laughs> enough characters to fit into one tweet, and it's kind of fun to see how she gets that all in there. The reception has been so great, and I think you would agree that what I think is so cool about it is the people who do truly listen to it every single day <laughs> and are completely in on it. I don't know if you saw it. There were some tweets, I remember about four or five days ago, I think at some point where people were tweeting back at us and predicting things that were going to be in that next morning's podcast, right down to like the way that you say certain things, like despite being down on the count at 1.1 and 2, or even quoting lines from our promotional reads that we have, Uh, you know, baseball season is the perfect season for Saison, things like that. You guys all out there, you really pay attention. <laughs> You're into this. You are hardcore. That's why we did this. We did this all for you. And it's really gratifying, I think. For, I can speak for myself, and I know I think you guys feel the same way, that it's not just that we have a loyal audience out there, but it's a passionate audience. And it's a, I'm saying this in the, in the best sense of the word, it's a fanatical audience out there. You guys are fully into this with us, and you're the reason why we stay up late and do this every night because we know how much it means to you. So we can't thank you enough for what you've done for us all year long. Yeah. And truthfully, I think if you're a Nats fan, you've been underserved for way too long in this market when it comes to Nationals talk. And there was a thinking, and Tim Shovers had the thinking of this podcast could help to fill a void that was long overdue to be filled. And you know, I'm not saying we've uh, filled it 100%, but we've certainly done our best, and we certainly appreciate everyone uh, who has been along for the ride here throughout this season. So you can get yourself a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt by going to 
www.thesportsbook.square.site. We're going to have a lot to talk about on the uh, show coming out late Sunday, early Monday. Not just about Game 162, but what Mark said, Mike Rizzo is speaking on Sunday. Mike has not spoken often this season, so going to be very interesting to see what he has to say and, you know, what presumably will be kind of a State of the Union address on the Nationals and where they're headed moving forward. So big episode coming out in our next installment of the podcast. Uh, All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chatter, courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi, and we'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. Hudson coming set. Jankowski leading off second. The kick and the pitch. Sliders in the dirt. And the runners caught between second and third. Avila running at him. Avila still running at him. Avila still running at him. He's going to tag him out. What a play by the Nationals catcher, Alex Avila. Runner gets caught off second. The best rundown play is when you never throw the baseball. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.